0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Julie Douglas.
1: And, uh, we're gonna give you a second dose of one of our favorite episodes from last year. We dealt with a, a topic that once we brought it up, we could, we just couldn't stop seeing it in uh, additional topics. We're talking, of course, about supernormal stimuli.
0: Yeah, that explains so much in our daily lives. If we look around and say, ah, that is why that thing exists.
1: Yeah, it's some core stuff to blow your mind content. So, uh, if you uh, enjoy it the first time, enjoy it again. If not, uh, prepare to have your mind blown. Today is an episode uh, where we can call out a particular listener for suggesting it.
0: Yeah, listener Serena, she sent us this excellent life hacker article about why we feel the need to fill our pie holes. In our eye holes with exaggerated versions of stimuli every
1: day. Yeah, and this started up because you think life hacker, you think, oh, I am I'm reading a life hacker article and know I'm gonna be a little better equipped to sort of make the best out of my day. You know, there's kind of an uplifting you know aspect to that. Mm-hmm. And, and so I I don't know about you, but I entered into this topic with that sort of idea in mind. Like, oh it's just a little quirky insight into how we go about our daily lives and maybe how we might improve it a little bit. But I found this topic to be one of the more ultimately disturbing (laughs) topics that we've looked at, like just condemning of, of, uh, of human nature and sort of makes you want to crawl into a cave. To a certain extent,
0: yeah. Because you're right. The premise was like, "Hey, we all love cheesecake, right? It's mm-hmm. delicious. It's yes. fatty. It's got tons of sugar." But this happens to be something called a supernormal stimuli. Um, this is a term evolutionary biologists use to describe any stimulus that elicits a response stronger than the stimulus for which it evolved, even if it's artificial. Yes. So, in other words, we like sugar because that's a quick hit of energy. We needed that back in the day. Um, but we don't need a slice of cheesecake.
1: Yeah, sugar is probably the easiest example to to just call out, and 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 generally a. a- well, not even really a harmless one, but a, a less harmful version than some of the things we're going to look at here. Because the basic idea is how much sh- raw sugar can you find in the natural environment if you're a, you know, a prehistoric hunter-gatherer? Mm-hmm. Maybe you'll find some berries. Maybe you'll find some sort of a carrot. Uh, but you're not going to find, uh, you know, a, a big sucker, a big dum-dum, a, 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 <laughs> a, a whole field of Tootsie Rolls to feast on. That is super normal stimuli. That is a a version of the stimuli that we seek as a, as, as an organism, except it is, uh, it is blown out of proportion. It is the crack cocaine of sugar and certainly crack and heroin, methamphetamines. These are, uh, these are other examples of uh of super normal stimuli that have had a, a huge effect on humans.
0: Yeah, in my mind there's a whole class of desserts called porn desserts. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like there's like sixteen layer caramel cakes that are Ugh. just so huge and big and with you know red frosting and it's so over the top. And we'll be talking about porn by the way yes. later on. Um, but it's like such a good example. Another great example um, of the sort of supernormal stimuli, giant eyed dolls or even yes. anime characters, I was
1: thinking about this cute yes we've we've uh, we've recorded at least one podcast in the in the past on the power of cute and mm-hmm. and how cute really taps into our our primal instincts to want to care mm-hmm. for uh, like a small child, and so we end up seeing that small small child 's face in the, in a cat in a cartoon character, but you look at some of these just. Super cute, hyper cute, dangerously cute anime characters or or the (laughs) or certainly the avatar of this Hello Kitty. And uh, and it's overpowering its cuteness almost beyond uh, our human ability to to take it in.
0: Right. And as Deidre Bartlett, a Harvard psychologist and the author of Super Normal Stimuli, How Primal Urges Overran Their Evolutionary Purposes, says this human instinct for food, sex, or even territorial protection, all of that is rooted in our instincts evolved, as you say, for hunting and gathering an early man. And she says that evolution has been unable to keep up with the pace of change, this rapid change in the modern life in which a Taco Bell Doritos Loco Taco You know, day glow, orange in your hand suddenly arrives. Um, Our bodies and our minds aren't really unable to water down that instinct, that response to that food or that stimulus.
1: Yeah, I mean, because on a basic level, what does the human creature need in order to survive? It needs to mate. And, uh, and, and and reproduce. It needs to take in food. Um, it needs to find uh, uh, these various tastes that please it. It needs protection. It doesn't need a lot of things. But then we layer on all the complexities of human civilization, mm-hmm. our technology, our art, our ability to find all the stimuli that we crave and then just just pump them up to an unbelievable degree.
0: Yeah, Bartlett says that as a result we have a glut of larger than life objects from candy to pornography to atomic bombs that cater to outmoded but persistent drives with dangerous results.
1: Indeed. Now, in order to fully understand this, we have to go to the roots of the term supernormal stimuli, uh, which are based in uh, some rather uh, simple biological principles, uh, which is nice, because, again, all these uh, these human layers of human civilization technology, it complicates the issue. But when we look to the animal world, we can find um, a far simpler model. And we we find that back in the 1930s uh, with the work of Dutch Nobel laureate Nico Tinbergen.
0: That's right. Uh, he is the person who coined the term "supernormal stimuli" to describe these these uh, sort of imitations that appeal to primitive instincts and exert stronger attraction than the real thing. So this biologist, he set about isolating traits that trigger certain instincts in animals and insects. And he manipulated these traits in nature to see what would happen. So this next bit is from the Life Hacker article by Daniel Jody, uh, or Jody, I suppose. Uh, it says that he constructed plaster eggs to see which one a bird would prefer to sit on, finding that they would select those that were larger, had more defined markings, or more saturated color. A day glow bright egg with black polka dots, for instance would be selected over the bird's own pale dappled eggs. And in fact that bird would keep slipping off the huge one but mm-hmm. it couldn't help it it was drawn to that super stimuli of the colors and the markings
1: because the colors and the markings in the natural world in the in the in the natural course of events would indicate the the healthier eggs which ones uh, have the the highest rate of survival and therefore that's where the bird is going to focus its attention this artificial egg though just pumps that completely out of proportion and the bird cannot help but respond by setting on this lifeless but beautiful gaudy egg and and riding that egg to the detriment of its actual <laughs> biological offspring uh, in the surrounding eggs, which are which are, Okay, but less uh, amazing.
0: Yeah, this is actually, to me, the really depressing part when you see this in nature. Yes. Uh, Because it really does bear out this idea that a lot of this is sort of hardwired in us and all organisms. He also found that territorial male stickleback fish would attack a wooden fish model more vigorously than a real male if its underside was redder. So, again pumping up those signs to it that would make it say oh that that's a competitor yes. look how red that underbelly
1: is and this is interesting too i want to make sure everyone sort of bookmarked this for later uh here we have super normal stimuli that is in uh, kind of in the negative realm as opposed to the positive something yeah. that's based in fear uh, as opposed to desire
0: that's a really good point the the aggressive part of it right mm-hmm. uh okay another experiment was that he constructed a cardboard dummy butterfly with more defined markings uh that male butterflies would actually try to mate with in preference to actual real female
1: butterflies and that's another one to to, to definitely uh, <laughs> remember for later when we start getting into the the human versions of these same principles
0: yeah, because if you think about, um, and we'll get into this later, but, you know, I always talk about gender performance. And, mm-hmm. okay, if if you take a female and a male and you don't do really much to them in terms of grooming them and, and clothing them in ways that are coded for their gender, there's not a ton of difference between them. But if you slap on a bunch of makeup on a female plug her eyebrows she's really performing that gender and i think about that with these butterflies like this must have been like the marilyn monroe of that butterfly yes and all the other male butterflies are like yes that one even though she's wooden looks great
1: yes the butterfly becomes this uh a little closer to this this ideal butterfly right Mm -hmm. and that's what really gets me about the the topic of supernormal stimuli um my mind, in reading this, kept, kept uh, returning to uh, Plato's theory of forms. Uh, Pla- Plato is in The, the Philosopher, of course. Um, he proposed that we live in this material realm, right? Okay, And beyond our plane of existence, there's an immaterial realm of ideal forms. All right, You can, you can think of these ideal forms as the absolute perfection of a given thing, a truth that cannot be uh, manifested in the material world. All we can do is echo it, okay? So in this world, there's no true beauty, but we have an innate understanding and longing for the true form of beauty as it exists beyond the limits of the material world. In a similar sense, you would argue that there's no true justice here, but we all have a sense of justice because there's an unreachable ideal that exists beyond our realm. Okay, out there in the realm of forms. And you can apply this to just about anything, uh, like a one- argument that's often made is a chair like every chair in our world is just a take an attempt to capture the perfect chairness uh, that we would find in the world of forms beyond our material world every pretty face every feeling every work of art it's just a, a take on the ideal and so it's tempting to view uh, supernormal stimuli in the same way we innately long for the true forms forms that simply do not occur in the natural world we do it through our art and our technology and in doing this, we're able to inch a little closer and a little closer to this awesome and terrible perfection that we crave. And so so we end up inching closer and closer and creating an artificial thing that just cannot exist in this world. And we're craving nothing but, but shadows of that and imitations of that. And we're taking, and to, to your point, that, I mean, the makeup uh, argument is perfect because we're taking real versions of beauty, and in a sense, defacing them and trying to carve them into, uh, into avatars of this true form, this, this perfect form that just cannot be achieved.
0: Yeah, this is, uh, essentially the Platonic ideal, right? This yeah. idea that you're trying to get to this ideal as close to perfection as possible. Although what Plato would say there's no perfection because we are mere copies of what God intended, right? Right. So there's this obsession with, as you say, uh, perfection and idealism and that this super normal stimuli is really a stand-in for it. It's such an intriguing idea, especially when we get to another section in which we talk about porn and, and other things that um, other types of media that we consume. Um, but before we do that, let's take a break and when we get back, we are going to talk about why humans are essentially like seagull chicks when it comes to art. All right, we're back. We are going to revisit this topic, art, and why we're drawn to it. Because um, we did a podcast on this. Uh I believe it was like the science of beauty or along yes. those lines. Mm-hmm. And we talked about V.S. Ramachandran, who has some really great and interesting ideas about art, he says, that are hardwired to the way that we respond to our environments. And particularly, he says, um, we evolved in a camouflage environment, and we are rewarded when we identify objects and patterns. And that's why we like to seek them out so often in this idea called grouping. So he says that when you are looking at a artwork, you can't help but be pleased on some level if you can detect those patterns. Now, he says to really understand why we are drawn to certain works of art, you have to look at seagull chicks because when they hatch, they start pecking at the mother's beak for food. And the mother seagull's beak is a long yellow thing with a red spot on the end. So, for those chicks, that red spot is that kind of stimuli that they know if they tap it, they get food. Right. So, action, reaction, and reward.
1: But what researchers quickly found is that you have okay, so you have the beak with the markings but you can uh, you can have just a beak you don't need the mother because the uh cuz nature takes shortcuts in our associations here or in the, certainly in the associations of birds so you can take the mother out of the equation you can just put an a beak on a stick mm-hmm. and they will respond to that mm-hmm. so that's that's kind of but the But it has to have the level. red spot on. Yes, it. has to have the spot has to, has to have the, the, the appropriate markings. But where it gets even crazier is that you turn those markings into super stimuli. You uh, you put three red lines on there. Mhm and then that just makes it irresistible to the chick like it just uh, it just overflows the the circuitry overloads the circuitry and they have to go to that beak now
0: yeah and actually Ramachandran says that the chick prefers the fetishized highly abstract representation of a beak to the real beak again a little depressing here because yeah. the mother is attached to the real beak and yet here are these three stripes that are very strong that they're they're exhibiting a a crazy reaction to. And this was research done by ethologist Tim Burton, by the way.
1: Yeah, not to be confused with the Tim Burton. No. Yeah, I was trying to, because I I was reading the the interview with uh, Ramachandra and he referred to Tim Burton, so I started doing all these searches for Tim Burton birds, Tim Burton... Uh, biologist, and it was still getting nothing but information on uh, the director, Tim Burton. That's um, too bad,
0: because I would love to see some sort of mashup, like him <laughs> directing a film about supernormal stimuli.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel I'm, I want to see nothing but films about supernormal stimuli now. Um, super stimuli about super stimuli. Indeed. Uh, well.
0: But uh, Ram Children says that this is the same reason that we humans gravitate toward art, that these abstractions, these metaphors, and unusual combinations of elements play to instincts wired deep in our reptilian brains instincts that really don't have any bounds because again as Bartlett says everything that's available to us today Mm -hmm. and the supersized fashion is not something that was available you know 10,000 years ago and so our brains and our bodies just have not been able to be conscious enough really to tamp this down
1: yeah and I, I love how he referred to the artificial beak uh for the bird as a as a fetish because it instantly brings to mind some of these uh these ancient fetishes that you see, the uh the, the Venus figurines, mm-hmm. right? Where it's uh doing really like a almost a headless woman, bosoms and belly. And, uh, and in a sense, even in a, in a very primitive sense, this is an idealized female form. And of course, through the history of art, you see lots of idealized versions of the, of the, the, the female form. I mean, the, the Venus de Milo, for example, is just another Venus in a very long, uh, tradition of Venuses.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, the code of those pieces of art is basically that, uh, your genetic material is going to survive better in this person, maybe, because yeah. perhaps there will, there will be, um, stronger offspring or or more of a chance to copulate with this person or, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, those are all the signs that are coming from that particular piece of art. And Ram Charanjian says that artists are tapping into the figural primitives of our perceptual grammar and creating ultra normal stimuli that are more powerfully exciting certain visual neurons in our brains as opposed to realistic looking images
1: yeah like when we did our podcast on the art uh, savannas came up landscapes yeah that there are certain artistic interpretations of landscapes that arguably uh get into our brain That are more pleasing. More pleasing. But essentially get their claws into us. Mm -hmm. Because on a very primitive level, we see it and we know that this would be a good place to live. It's like, oh, there's some trees I can seek some cover there. There's some water I can drink. Everything that Bob Ross describes when he's painting a landscape, mm-hmm. like those are all things that are th- those are all aspects of, of a landscape that would be pleasing to the human organism.
0: Yeah, I remember from that too that um, the vantage point was really important. That you would want to be up on a hill in yes. those landscape um, paintings, so that you would be able to see out not just you know over your kingdom, but be able to see any intruders coming upon you.
1: Right. All right. So that's art. That's one. It's one thing to think about. The aesthetic world but uh but how do we take this and apply it to the the less aesthetic worlds of say uh fast food
0: well as we had mentioned before i mean the especially with sugar uh our bodies need a little bit of it mm-hmm. and so we have you know, those big crazy anime eyes looking at that right. and taking all of that in and thinking i want the entire thing um so you know for me I think this topic is really writ very large in junk food. Yes, because food is energy; we gravitate to it, um, but we don't necessarily know when to stop. Right? That's that whole boundary thing with our instincts. So, if you look at a giant jar of peanut butter
1: mm-hmm.
0: on on a shelf, you know I'm talking about Costco or any of those other like super crazy places where they've got just giant. Oversized cans of all types right, of food yeah. um, on some level that's tapping into the primal brain And somewhere. I mean, you know, some evolutionary biologists might say that jar of peanut butter is a promise to you that you're not going to have to leave your cave very often for food and you won't encounter as much danger.
1: Yeah, because your body is saying that stuff is great. That is what I crave. I want as much of that as I can possibly get so that I can stockpile it and have it whenever I want.
0: I will not have to leave my apartment for three months with that jar of peanut butter. <laughs> um, but, you know, of course, there's an idea here that we live so much in the symbolic world. And yeah. so some of these meanings can't help but drill down into us.
1: You know, I can't help but think of french fries um, in terms of supernormal stimuli, because what are french fries? Your average order of french fries, you know, covered with ketchup, and that's and that's not counting if you're adding bacon or chili mm-hmm. or nacho cheese or whatever the latest uh, TGI Fridays sort of uh, twist on it happens to be. But in one plate, you're you're t- so you're satisfying your cravings for fat, for crispiness that you're uh, that you're on on a, on a on one level associating with fresh vegetables. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're getting sweetness. You're getting salt. Maybe you're getting a hit of hint of meat uh, if you have some sort of weird topping on it. And all of this in one big blasphemous serving.
0: You know what's really interesting about that is uh there is an article out there somewhere about the physics of a potato chip and why it's so appealing to us. And if I'm remembering this correctly, the kind of crunch, that popping sound that the chips make is is the exact same that a fresh fruit or vegetable might feel like in your mouth. And this exactly. is something that our brains have been tagging for, you know, tens of thousands of years. And so that chip is really just riding into the circuitry of your brain saying fresh.
1: Fresh, this is good. This is healthy. Let's we cannot just eat just one. Eat the whole bag. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And salty too. Mm.
1: Yeah. All right, another area that uh again there's some uh, there's there's a level of aesthetics involved in this as well, but the world of gaming, video gaming. Mm-hmm. Uh everything from uh you know playing what is it uh Candy Corn, Candy Crush. On your phone to some sort of deep MMO immersion experience because what do you get with video games? You get an instant entry into a world of goal achievement, yes. Um, neurological award for that goal achievement, empowerment. Uh, in some cases, graphic violence, exploration. Um, the, the goal achievement is something I often think about as it, when I find time these days to to play like a quick video game. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think well, this is clearly what's happening here is my brain is is adjusting to this false environment and saying, oh, well, we just achieved something there. We just achieved something there. Even if in the course of the day, maybe I didn't actually close any loops, you know? Mm -hmm. Here I am closing loop after loop in just, say, 15 minutes of gameplay.
0: So this reminds me of two things. One is the stickleback fish, right? Mm -hmm. Because you've got the the red underside of the wooden fish, the more aggression toward that. And video Ah. games are so beautiful, if I may say that. Um, The way that they're rendered and the colors and the saturation, all of that is very intriguing. And it's kind of like hyper-realism. So that's one thing I think that people fall into. The other is, this is really playing into for me, is an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and Are you familiar with yes, this? Yes, yeah,
1: I've, I've, I've watched a number of episodes. Oh, it's, good. Good
0: of, it's great. And one of the characters is D, and she's kind of always shoved around by the other guys in this gang of theirs, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, and she turns to the virtual world with avatars to try to vanquish them, in a sense. Because huh. in real life, she has not much power or control over the situation, but she creates these characters, and everybody in the town gets to know the, the virtual reality players in this game get to know that gang and they know what, how D is describing them in this other world. It is probably my favorite. It's always sunny in Philadelphia episode and there's this great idea behind it all that um, they're just all in a turtle's dream in outer space.
1: Oh, that's pretty awesome. I'll have to check that episode out. Yes. I love that you mentioned the word avatar because certainly Avatar in the gaming world is one thing; it's the the version of us that goes into this lesser world. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the uh, in the world of cosmology and religion, an avatar is a version of a god that we as humans can uh, interact with, or at least some aspect of a god uh, that we can comprehend. And uh, and in thinking about the ideal forms of Plato, uh, I can't help but think of those forms in that uh, in that ideal realm mm-hmm. as being. Kind of like gods, kind of like a pantheon of gods, where each deity is again an idealized version of something that we want out of life. And in the gaming world, this adversary that you're you're uh, you know you're shooting mm-hmm. in this uh, this 15 minutes of gameplay in the evening, that is the ideal version of an adversary, kind of a an avatar of some uh, of, of some ideal enemy, and you're vanquishing it in the same way that uh, this uh, this artificial version of a beautiful woman uh, in a magazine is again an avatar of, of ideal beauty that we've created. Some version of of the uh, unimaginable perfection beyond our realm that we have uh, made, we've cobbled together in our realm.
0: Ooh, let's jump off on that because I think the beautiful woman thing that really plays into this idea of porn and, again, gender performance. And when we talked about lust uh, in an episode of um, one of our Seven Sins, we talked about this article called The Internet is for Porn, so let's talk about it. And I just wanted to um, reference it real quick In light of why we seek supernormal stimuli, in 1991, before ye old internet, I suppose by now, there were fewer than 90 porn magazines published in the U.S. Today, more than 2.5 million porn sites are blocked by CyberSitter. That's not all of them, but that's as many as CyberSitter has combed through. So now consider that porn is tapping into the reward circuitry of your brain with the release of dopamine. And dopamine is really that neurotransmitter, that chemical that keeps you seeking out that experience again and again. It's what helps form habits. Mm -hmm. So porn is this kind of really interesting aspect of supernormal stimuli because, you know, you could have a person in in, in the other room who is more than willing to have sex with you. Mm -hmm. But some people will actually opt to say, just look at porn instead. And, um... Interact with that image in their mind, and that is fascinating because here you might have the real thing, but you know, just like the beak, mm-hmm. the fake beak with the three stripes on it, you keep sort of going toward that
1: yeah. the fake thing. Or even more to the point, like the uh, the gaudy golden egg uh, in the the bird's nest. Yeah, it's not going to produce anything. It has no substance. It's it's just a, a just a gateway to the abyss. But you're going to choose that over over actual human interaction or at least even the, uh, you know, if not, you know, because certainly not everyone's in a position where they can uh, as easily find human interaction and ultimately some sort of sexual experience, but still to choose that over the, even the attempt at it, the attempt at human interaction.
0: And think about that egg again, Mm -hmm. you know, the big, giant egg with the spots on it, the polka dots, and it's day glow yellow. And then think about the women that are represented in porn and their dimensions, Quite often, you have. I mean, I I don't know that there's even any um, porn that features women that aren't augmented, or at least uh, approaching certain dimensions with their bodies.
1: Well, there are a lot of different types of pornography. Um, well, <laughs> so. not, I mean,
0: you know, obviously, seventies porn.
1: I tell you what, Pat Oswalt, the uh, the up comedian, he um, he did did a bit, and I imagine still does a bit. Uh, Pointing out that no matter what one's like, whatever a, a person's particular individual fetishes, no matter you know this dark thing that they haven't told anybody, somewhere out there in the world, there there is a like a team of people who have a magazine devoted to that, and they're just so bored with it. It's just so every day. Now this is an older bit that he did. I imagine you could basically extrapolate this to websites and just pornography in general. So, but but every corner of of of, of sexuality, uh, within limits, or maybe not even within limits, is, is represented out there. And that's part of the supernormal stimuli of it. Like you could, you could just go out there and just fall down the hole of pornography, mm-hmm. and almost never reach the bottom.
0: And again, dopamine would be really helping to carve out those neural pathways mm-hmm. to keep you going again and again. So, Obviously, we are conscious of our behavior. We humans, we have that beautiful prefrontal cortex, which is helping us manage all these different things about our lives and helping us be conscious. Um, so how do we want to look at this? Because, I mean, you can look at this in a light of like ah, a positive Super, light.
1: Supernormal stimuli in general or just pornography?
0: Basically, um, okay. super normal in okay. in general.
1: Because with pornography, we could certainly go a lot deeper into that topic and just oh, discussing yeah. like because you have super normal stimuli, and then how does that affect just everything in life? How does that affect um, uh, you know underlying currents of misogyny and culture? How does that affect your personal interactions, your expectations from real world sexuality? How does it change real world sexuality? But for yeah. another for another podcast.
0: I guess what I'm saying is there are two different ways to look at this. So mm-hmm. you want to take good cop or bad cop?
1: Um I guess I'll take bad cop.
0: knew it. Okay.
1: Okay. Well, I mean the bad cop version of uh, of looking at the supernormal stimuli is that I mean we're kind of we're kind of boned, and we always have been. We're we're tied to these uh, these cravings and these desires for these ideal forms and we thanks to our technology, thanks to our thanks to our art, we're able to craft We're able to sort of scratch away at that layer between us and the ideal to create these artificial versions of the things we want. And then we, we're kind of powerless to resist them. You know, we, we, we end up not leaving our apartments because the internet provides us just instant access to whatever our whim might be. Instant access to just, you know, an an endless stream of whatever kind of uh, sexuality we want to immerse ourselves in. We can, we can order any kind of tantalizing junk food we want and have it delivered right to our home in whatever quantities we want. And so we end up just setting on that big golden egg, just riding it into extinction uh, like the uh, like the atomic bomb uh, at, the, at the end of Dr. Strangelove. And indeed, the atomic bomb is an example of, of aggression, of, aggression, mm-hmm. of just of, of super stimuli in the world of uh, of protection and the desire to be protected against uh, aggression from these uh uh, outsider forces.
0: Okay. I'll add one thing to that before I go to good cop. Okay. All right. Um,
1: See, because you're a bad cop, too. That's the thing.
0: Well, I can be a good cop. Yeah. Do you remember we were talking about our episode on habits? Yes. And we were talking about like something like 45% of the decisions that we make on a daily basis are rooted in habit. Mm-hmm. And if habits are driven by reward systems, then that means... That that's not such a great thing, right? Like right. it would be very hard for us to overcome these sort of routinized uh neural pathways that are happening every single day. Like you might have to be as zen as a monk and as conscious of your behaviors. But now I will go to DJ Bartlett. Okay. She's really the good cop here. <laughs> and she says humans have one stupendous advantage over Tim Bergen's Birds, uh, that's Nicholas Tinbergen. Um, she says, We have a giant brain, and this would give us the unique ability to exercise self control and override instincts that lead us astray and extricate ourselves from civilization's gaudy traps. You think so? You think we can do it?
1: Maybe. I mean, it's, it's kind of a colossal idea because, again, I, I kind of like to look at these uh, super stimuli entities as kind of dark gods from beyond our uh, universe and then what's standing what do we have to combat them we have well we have a nice brain we have some willpower that we can summon we have some self-knowledge of our relationship with super stimuli we can conceivably stop and realize oh that even without getting into to to, to porn to go back to uh just just beauty you know to realize oh well that that version of Scarlett Johansson that's on the front of that magazine is actually, she's wearing makeup. She has probably been photoshopped. Like, even though that is a real woman, that is an idealized version of a real woman. So we can, we can be self-aware. We can exert willpower. So yeah, I will, I will agree with the good cops to a certain extent on that, but I feel like we're, we're up against some pretty overwhelming odds.
0: No, no. We like to rely on our uh, lazy blueprint that we've created Mm -hmm. for ourselves. Be- uh, or at least I sh- should say I do.
1: Because uh, back to willpower, we've done, of course, uh, podcasts on willpower and we know that willpower is a depletable resource. So when we're, we're most of command, most in command of ourselves, when we're most awake and aware of ourselves, then maybe we're the equal of this, uh, of these forces. But no. we can't stay awake all the time. We can't stay, uh, at, at, you know, completely tanked up on willpower all the time.
0: Unless we have a third eye that we can open
1: oh. to
0: consciousness, uh, but I think that kind of concludes where we are with this topic. I think um, so. You know, there are a couple of bright spots in this world in which symbolic meaning is uh, underpinning everything that we do.
1: Indeed, we have the we have the equipment to fight the good fight. So, uh, so just keep that in mind. Suit up. Yeah, the next time uh, cheesy fries come in. So there you have it. Uh, One of our favorite episodes from the vault there. Uh, If you'd like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, where you'll find all the past episodes, all the videos, all the blog posts, links out to our social media accounts, you name it.
0: And uh, if you have thoughts on this, we'd like to know, especially, like, uh, does this change your ideas of the sorts of fast food that you may or may not engage in? That triple-decker burger, let us know. You can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com.